0: Hello and welcome to the Anchor Bible Study Podcast, a ministry of Rock Harbor Church. We want to help guide and grow you in your walk with the Lord by providing an in-depth study of God's Word with our Wednesday evening Bible studies here in this podcast. So please grab your Bibles and let's set a course for spiritual maturity. Here's Pastor Brandon with this week's lesson.
1: Okay, uh, on your first page, page 1 Ephesians 1, through 3-14, we're going to unpack a little bit tonight. This is a very misunderstood passage, so I need to walk very slowly through it. But I think as we take our time through it, you'll start understanding where the mistakes are in a Calvinistic interpretation, and then really what it's saying for face value, I think. So to, to start with, it says, "'Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ.'" So I just wanna stop right there and notice In the first verse, it's talking about our. So there's a corporate aspect in Ephesians 1 that Paul is dealing with it. And the corporate aspect includes Jew and Gentile. That's his argumentation in Ephesians uh, 1 through 3 about this mystery body being put together in the Messiah that incorporates Gentile and Jew. So he's going to use a word of our Okay, so there's a corporate element to it. There's an individual element, but there's also a corporate element to it. And he says, Our Lord Jesus Christ. And the mentioning of the Lord Jesus Christ in the passage is that he is the focus of the passage. He is the main emphasis rather than the individual believer. Okay? Unfortunately, what Calvinists do to this passage is they take the focus off Jesus and they put the focus on the individual. But as I've already stated, two things should be noted. It's a corporate mentioning of our, us, and it's the focus on the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, so that's, that's what you have to know contextually looking at this. And it says, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And notice the term, in Christ. Now, now, what you'll see with that term all over Ephesians is it's Paul keeps saying in him, in the beloved, in Christ, in him. It's all over the place. In fact, there's 22 occurrences in Ephesians of in Christ. So when you see that term, it is not a throwaway term. It's, it's just a generality. It is a technical term. The technical term has to do with a believer's position in the Messiah. Okay. So in order to be in Christ and Christ in you, the person must have already come to faith in him. When you come to faith in Messiah, he places you in what element? The body of Christ. That is his body. That is being inside of the Lord is now you are placed in the body of Christ and that's really the waterless baptism of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit baptizes you and identifies you into Christ. You, so, so once you believe, then you're put in Christ and you're sealed till the day of redemption in that position. That position, because the seal of the Holy Spirit is on you, because it's a permanent position, means that it cannot be taken away. You cannot lose this position. Once you're in Christ, you can never be taken out of Christ, because the Father has handed over that authority to the Messiah, and the Messiah then holds you in Him. Okay? So it's a technical term of being in Christ, okay? So being in position justified, and then having a future before you. Now, If we go on, and again, this is a big deal. That is the major term in this passage that you have to understand. Most people just gloss over that. Okay? So, verse 4 then starts this way. Just as He chose us in Him. Okay? And this is where we really have to unpack this a little bit. Let's look at what the verse doesn't say. The verse doesn't say that he chose individuals for salvation. He is choosing individuals who are, are already in him. Does that make sense? He's not saying I choose people for salvation. I'm choosing in him. Those who are already in him. Okay? Now, just to refresh our minds, we understand choosing as a secondary effect after someone responds to the invitation of salvation. And that goes to Matthew 22 in the parable of the wedding feast. Many are called or invited and few are chosen. The choosing happens after the person responds to salvation to the wedding invitation. And then they are given a predetermined Set of wedding clothes by the host. And they are chosen to have the wedding garments put on them. So you must understand when you're reading Ephesians and you have to incorporate all what the passages say about this. Is there is a difference between believing in the Messiah and being chosen in the Messiah. There are two different elements. They happen at two different I shouldn't say two different times they're they're sequential, I should say, because almost instantaneously. But when you believe in the Messiah, you're justified and, and you're in the Messiah at that point in time. Once you're in the Messiah, you are chosen for something. You are chosen to be something. But you have to be in the Messiah to be chosen. Just like Jesus' parable, many are called but few are chosen. The ones that get chosen are the ones who come to the invitation. Okay, so let me stop right there. Any questions so far? Am I making sense? Because this starts getting a little technical here. This is very important that you understand that we are not talking about choosing for salvation, but being chosen for something else once you are saved. Okay. This choosing can only happen in the Messiah. OK, in him, he follow those in the technical word in him. And he says before the foundation of the world. And again, the Calvinist will misinterpret this and say, oh, God chose us before the foundation of the world. That pre-creation, God chose individuals to save. And that's how they interpret the passage. But. As you can see. There is a time where you weren't in the Messiah, right? There was a time when you you weren't in Him. They interpret being in Him before the foundation of the world. Does that make sense? That it's all said and done before the foundation of the world. So even if you hadn't come to faith in Christ, you were already in Christ, in their view. That's a contradiction, right? How can I be in Christ if I haven't believed I can only be in him when I, once I believe. But see, the Calvinist says, no, that was done pre-creation, before the foundation of the world, but they leave out the little term in Christ, and they don't know the phrase before the creation, before the foundation of the world, who that refers to. So does that phrase refer to us, or does it refer to someone else? I want you to turn to page five on your, your handout. So, I'm gonna read a number of passages. Right there it says before the foundation of the world terminology and who it's directed to. What I wanna show you in this, in these passages is what is the general reference anytime it says before the foundation of the world. What is the general reference to this? In 1 Peter 1, 18 through 21, knowing that you were not redeemed by corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition of your fathers, talking to the Jews, obviously, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish, without spot, he indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world. Who in that text is that referring to? Christ. Christ is the one who is elected or chosen before the foundation of the world. The plan of salvation includes the Messiah's death. God already knew this. So this plan of salvation, in order to redeem humanity that would fall and to reestablish humanity in a relationship with God, had to have the Messiah die. Buried and rose from the dead in order to offer that again. Okay, so when Peter mentions this, he says, but was manifest in these last times for you, who through him believe in God. Who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. So in this sense, he is saying that the Messiah was manifested to us in these last times basically in the first century when he's writing it. So the Messiah showed this, showed this plan that was foreordained before creation even started. And that it was manifest through the cross. Okay, you following me with me? Okay, John seventeen five. And now, O Father, this is the Messiah talking, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you, before the world was, or the other translation is before the, for the foundation of the world, the same chapter 1724 father, I desire that they also whom you gave me may be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory, which you gave me for you love me before the foundation of the world. Now let's move to Matthew twenty-five thirty-four. Then the king will say to those on his right hand, come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Now, again, what it's doing is from the foundation of the world that Messiah's act on the cross is what allows the kingdom age to happen. So the kingdom and the king are tied together. and That's why in the Matthew passage it's tied to the kingdom. And so. The one that is chosen before the foundation of the world is not the individual believer. It is the Messiah himself who is the elect one. He is the one who was chosen for, for bringing salvation. Now, this passage goes to, um, it harkens back to Isaiah 41, 4. The last bullet point on page 3, and if you move down To the sentence, but we are individually elect or chosen. But we are individually elect or chosen only in as much as we are grasped into the Messiah, who is the elect one. Isaiah prophesies, behold, my servant, my chosen one. But if you you translate that in the Greek, which we're in the New Testament, we're dealing with Greek. But you use the Septuagint. It's the word elect. It's the word chosen one. That is, that's you, that's used for us. In whom my soul delights. So Paul describes Jesus as the instrument or means, or better yet, the manifestation used by God to perform some task or purpose. And obviously, the task and purpose is to die on a cross. He is the elect one. So that those that are in him are chosen to do something. So we haven't figured that one out yet, but they're chosen. He is the chosen one. That's why you sometimes get the term the the elect of God, whether it's dealing with Israel, dealing with the church, the elect of God has to do with their relationship to the Messiah. And therefore, what are they chosen to do? Well, let's continue reading then. Go back to your page one. What is the point of choosing us after we have come to faith in Christ? Choosing us to do what? That we should be holy and without blame before Him in love. So the purpose, Paul states, of God choosing us in salvation is so that we can be like the Messiah in holiness. The whole point of our salvation is to get us back in relationship with God, but to be able to stand before him in holiness and righteousness. And that can only happen through the Messiah. So now we know a little bit more of how to interpret Matthew 22 based on what Paul is revealing now. So in the wedding parable, when someone is chosen for the wedding garments, Paul now is unpacking that and saying, look, part of this, this, this predetermined wedding package that you're going to get once you get saved is that God has a destiny for everyone who believes that one day they will be able to stand before him in holiness. That's the package. That's what they're given if they're in Christ. It's a predetermined package. So God has always had this plan. He knew if he created man, that man would fall. And he would have to redeem them. And this would be the only way to redeem them. And in that redemption, a few, a remnant would find it, accept it. But they would then go on to be like the the Messiah in holiness and righteousness. Then he goes, verse 5, Having predestined us, does it say to what? To salvation? To adoption. Oh, that's a detail most Calvinists don't want to pick up on. They want to use the word predestinate to say, see, he predestinates to salvation. The text does not say that you are predestinated to salvation. It says you're predestinated to be adopted. Okay, so what does it mean to be adopted? Uh, what? It, it inher- includes inheritance, right? Christ shares his inheritance with us. That's true. That's part of it. Yeah, John. We're his child. Okay, so, so we have the down payment on our adoption right now is the Holy Spirit. Okay, we have the earnest. We weren't all his child. But his plan is that anyone who believes in him will be part of his family. Yeah. That's right. We weren't child, so so it it kills the argument with the Calvinist. Yeah. So here's my question. Theologically, eschatology, your personal eschatology, when will you be adopted? You are? You've already been adopted? You sure about that? You have the earnest. The paperwork's been done. The paperwork's done, but have you fully been adopted? Go ahead. Go ahead. I want you to think about go for it, man. How does the person know if their belief is acceptable before God? Ah, yes. The emphasis is not on the person. The emphasis is on what Messiah did. The assurance is Messiah's word. If you believe in me, I promise you I'll give eternal life. And the way I back that up is I died for you, buried and rose again you got to be careful about that because you're going to get too introspective on that and you're going to start thinking that, oh, I just have head knowledge. Belief can be done by a five-year-old child in many regards. So it God's not asking them much. It's a simple question. Do you believe Messiah can give you eternal life? That's it. That's it. I do. I do. That means you're saved. That's it. There's no. You don't have to do some Calvinist introspection because they're going to say, Well, Chad, were you sincere? That's Calvinism. That's Calvinism. You weren't sincere. You, you didn't have an emotional breakdown when Jesus saved you. But I had an emotional breakdown. Right? Right. Right. So, exactly. Because then you would base your salvation on your works. And Christ is saying, Chad, Brandon, everyone else... Don't look at your works to see if you're saved. Look at my work to see if you're saved. It's a whole different emphasis. So if you want assurance of salvation, your assurance is not to look to yourself. It's to look to the Messiah. Do I believe that sacrifice paid for all my sins, past, present, and future? Yes, that's it. That's assurance. So, so, okay. So, so are you adopted? Keep that thought. Hold on. Yeah, exactly. And so assurance, we call it eternal security, but assurance is a big deal for a believer. And what Messiah is promising is, look, no one will pluck you out of my hand. Once the father has given the authority to me, I have the authority of death and Hades. I have I have the keys of salvation, the keys of death and Hades. No one can take you out of my hands. Well, that's assurance. So can you take yourself out of the Messiah's hands by your works? What if you're just you? you go crazy and you start committing the worst sins possible and we just like what happened to you what would we say and you truly got saved you're still saved your salvation is assured but your judgment at the at the judgment seat of Christ is you're going to lose rewards for all of that you're going to forfeit rewards you're saved but you you're going to lose your position in the kingdom You'll be in the kingdom, but you won't inherit anything. Let me ask you this. Have you ever noticed and studied the New Testament in the way it uses the word inheritance? Okay. If you're part of a family, are you guaranteed an inheritance? Why wouldn't you have get, well, I thought, your family? Don't you automatically get an inheritance? No, go to any funeral and you'll see them fight over the inheritance, right? That's usually what they're doing. And they're fighting over like a thousand bucks or something like that. Mama likes you better and I don't, I don't understand this. And so what you'll see is you have the right to get an inheritance. Messiah wants to share his inheritance with you. But not everybody will get that inheritance. Do you know why? Because they're not faithful. And if you're not faithful, you lose parts of your inheritance. Now you can lose all your inheritance if you apostatize. You'll lose all your inheritance. Okay, you're still part of the family, but you you're not going to be trusted with an inheritance. You, you, all I you have to do is look no further than the parable of the talents and the parable of the minas. Right? He stripped the one of all his inheritance, all all that he was going to be rewarded with. Okay. So when you look at inheritance, I want you to keep looking at it and understand. When Paul or Peter or any of them use the term, it is a term for believers who are faithful. Now, let me ask you this. Do all believers enter the kingdom of God? Yes. Right. All believers, you must be born again in order to enter the kingdom. That's your entrance pass into it. That's the only way you're getting into it. But just because you're getting allowed into the kingdom doesn't mean you inherit anything. You get to be there, but the inheritance is based on your rewards. So, that, so you have to know the difference between the two and understanding, OK, my inheritance is based on my Christianity, how good or faithful I was as a Christian, my works and stuff like that. So now back to her question. Are you a child of God? Yes, yes. You've been declared a child of God. Positionally, you are a child of God because of the justification, because of what Messiah did. You have been justified and you're declared a child of God. You're one of his. But are you adopted yet? And what does adoption mean? Justification has to do with a legal term, doesn't it? You're legally declared something. Practically, are you righteous? No. I have a little bit, you have a little bit, but we're working on it. But legally, forensically speaking, you are declared righteous, even though practically you don't live that way. That's the whole point of sanctification, right? That you're becoming more righteous. But when you're talking about justification and you want to talk about your position in the Messiah in Christ, that's a legal position spiritually. That I'm seated in the heavenlies. Are you seated in the heavenlies right now? No, it's talking about a position that you possess. A legal position that you possess. Oh, no, no. Every person who believes is a child of God and will be adopted one day. No, no, no. You got to know what adoption means. True, because we're children of God. Ah, yes. Yes. That's right. Positionally. Right. You sure can because of your position. Right. But are you adopted yet? OK. I'm, I know I'm confusing you because most people, uh, they know about our adoption. Um, let me see if I can find it in Romans. Romans. I don't think I, before, so I may not be able to find it right now. I can, barely, I can barely see right now. Hold on. Go ahead, Chad. No, because an heir receives an inheritance. It's used in legal terms. An heir typically we'll get an inheritance but can an heir get nothing and still be a child of their parents yes now we are heirs of all things conditionally but we are we're children of God positionally that never can be taken away from us and so there's a distinction between the two is it Romans 8 i mean I, my eyes are killing me right now 8 what? 815, huh? Found it. Gotcha. Thank you. If I can see this. I have large print and it's still... Is that 250? I'm thinking I'm about, um, about 250. 815. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors not to the flesh to live accordingly to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if you live with the Spirit... You put to death the deeds of the body, uh, you will live. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. For you did not receive a spirit of bondage, but upon fear, and received the spirit of adoption. You received the spirit of adoption. And how does the Holy Spirit give you adoption according to Paul in Ephesians? He does something to you. He seals you. The sealing of the Holy Spirit is the seal of adoption. Paperwork is done. Legally, it's all done. The seal is on you, but you have yet to be adopted. By by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. That's true, right? Positionally. And if we are children, then heirs. Heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If... Oh, It was going so good. It was like automatic, right? And then it threw in the word if. If what? If we suffer with Him, that we may also be glorified together. Oh, man. Right, I know, right? Yeah, right? If we suffer with Him, that we may also be glorified with Him. Okay, because uh, I'm not done with the adoption. I, I still haven't answered whether we're adopted yet. Okay, but he puts a condition on it, doesn't he? Oh, you have to suffer well. That's what he's trying to say. If you're going to receive an inheritance, yeah, you're a co-heir positionally, but practically, if you receive anything, you must suffer well. What do you mean, suffer well? How do you, how do you suffer well versus suffer bad? Right? You, su- you suffer well. Okay. Do you suffer well? Yes. Yeah. So part of suffering well is endurance and perseverance. Not the Calvinist perseverance, but persevering through the suffering. And what would you do in the midst of suffering that you wouldn't suffer well? Well, you will bolt. You will run. You will get mad at God. You will get mad at other believers and blame them. You will blame everybody. You will become a victim. You go into bitterness. You go into anger. You go into revenge. You go into all kinds of crazy stuff. And then at that point, you're not suffering well. And you're not going to get rewarded for copping an attitude about your suffering. You just won't. That's what he's trying to say. He wants you to suffer well like the Messiah suffered. How did Jesus suffer well? He endured the cross. He accepted the pain. So, if you want an inheritance, accept the pain, accept the problems in your life. But in the minute you go into protest, that's when you're not suffering well. And there's a lot of people in protest. There's a lot of people in protest of their lives. I get it. I understand. Life didn't go the way you wanted to. And you can sit there all day and protest it, but you're not suffering well. Maybe they're suffering with the husbands they have.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh, suffering for the gospel? No, no, no. The, the word trials and stuff like that in the Scripture has to do with various trials. It, it includes persecution? But not all of that. I mean, you can have trials with your health, right? Most people are suffering with health issues, right? Or you can have uh, trials with your family and trials with all kinds of money and all kinds of job situations. It's it's various trials. Yeah, there's persecution in that, but not that's not all the time happening to Christians. Most you know. Well, and, and, and it said, Paul told Timothy, anyone who wants to live a godly life, what did he say? Will suffer. So if you just go out there and say, I want to live for Christ, I just want want to be a moral person, you're going to suffer. It goes back to the parable of the soils. If the soil doesn't have deep roots, when the sun comes up, what does it do on the rocky ground? The sun fries it. The idea of the sun, Messiah interpreted that as persecution or trials come, the sun comes, it burns them because they don't have deep roots. So that's what happens. So you're right. You've got to sink deep roots in order to deal with the, uh, the trials in your life, and then you can handle them well. So you're absolutely right. Maturity helps you handle trials. Okay. Still haven't answered the question. You're saying you're adopted right now. In faith. Yes. In faith. I have well. <laughs> Life's not done yet. <laughs> okay, hold on, hold on. Go ahead, Maria. You're getting close. You're getting close. There's some. You're right on target because if if the adoption language Paul is using is exactly that in a Roman culture, you were legally adopted. That that doesn't mean that you went into the home yet. There was a time, but you're legally adopted. Then you have to be brought into the home and tutored. Okay. So Paul answers this. If you're curious, so here's the deal. He's going to answer. Are you adopted? Now, we already established you're a son or or daughter of God by your faith, positionally. But I want you to listen to the Apostle Paul. This is Romans 8, verse 20, we'll start in verse 23. Not only that, but we also have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves. So, the first fruits of the Spirit are in us, right? That's the earnest, that's the, the evidence that we are children of God, that we have these things. Eagerly waiting for the adoption. Let's just stop right there. Eagerly waiting for the adoption. We haven't been adopted then. We have the earnest of adoption. We have the paperwork done. but We have not fully been adopted. He's explained what the adoption is. The redemption of our body. Bingo. We will only be adopted at the redemption of our body. And what does that mean? No, you can be raptured. It's when you're glorified. You can be glorified uh, at the rapture and be alive and be glorified. Once you're glorified and given a new body, the spirit body that you will inhabit, that's when your adoption occurs. Adoption is related to you being with Christ and having the glorified body. You're at home now. You're at the house, and now He's changing your old body into the new body. That's adoption. You have the earnest right now. You have the earnest. The earnest is the Holy Spirit sealed on you. That one day this will happen to you. Yeah, at all that um, the new name might come at the judgment seat of Christ as a reward. But, um, the body's instantaneously in the resurrection. And so, um, and so, yeah, so probably I would put that second at, at the, at the Bema seat. Because you're going to be resurrected first and then the Bema seat. And so, um, that's when you're adopted. You're not fully adopted yet. Um, does that change anything? Well, it helps you to understand the, the, what needs to happen. Okay, so, Right now, the reason you don't experience adoption by being, by, well, once you believe you're given a glorified body is God is asking you to trust and have faith that all these promises He said to you will come true in the end. So, He tells you your position, but you don't experience the practicality of that position yet. You don't see yourself seated in the heavenlies yet. You don't see the redemption of your body. That hasn't happened. So the, the issue is you are to trust your position, have faith in what God gave you, that one day will all come practically experientially one day. Ah, well, they, they too would believe adoption would be the same thing. Cause it's pretty black and white with Paul. But I think what, what, when we go back to Ephesians one, where, where we started from, here's what, what we want to look at: having predestined us to adoption, to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to Himself. Now, now interpret verse five of Ephesians. Does it say having predestined us to salvation? No, that He predestinated that one day those who are in Christ, will be chosen to be holy and blameless. And the way to guarantee that is that one day I will give them a glorified body, which does not contain a sin nature like they have right now. And therefore they can be holy and blameless because they have a new body that was all secured by what my son did for them. You cannot stand before God and be holy and blameless in this body. It's impossible. You can't go before God like that. He's not going to let you enter heaven with this current body. That's why at death you're separated from your body and your sin nature stays with that and dies away. And, and you go into a soulish experience until the redemption of your body. So if you were to die today and go to heaven, you're in a, a, a spirit form. Uh, but you don't have your body yet. So you're still not fully adopted. You will be adopted at the resurrection. But that it, it totally makes sense, Paul's argumentation. If God wants me to be holy and blameless, I have to be forensically justified by the Messiah. So I have to be in the Messiah. But then practically speaking, I have to have a glorified body in order to be present with Him. So you can see the line of argumentation. He goes from positional to practical. Yeah, I saw a hand somewhere. Yes, yet. Yeah. He knew that it meant more inheritance. It knew it, meant, uh, it glorified the Lord more and, you know, it, it had witnessing purposes and all that. And notice what it says, according to the good pleasure of his will. Now, notice that phrase and what it's attached to. The Calvinists take that phrase and say he, he predestinated you to salvation according to his own good will. Does that what Ephesians say? I don't know how you lift that out of context. The phrase, according to the good pleasure of his will, has to do with that it was God's good pleasure to bless those who believed in his son with all these benefits of adoption and holiness and, and everything like that. That was the will of God, is that anyone who believes gets the package deal. And then he says, um, to the praise of the glory of his grace, so it, it gives God glory, which he made us accepted in the beloved. So there's that term again, in the beloved. How are you accepted into God's family? On your own merits? No, you're only accepted if you're in Christ. In the Messiah, because the Messiah then gives you his righteousness and that righteousness gives you acceptance. Does acceptance, though, mean approval? No, No, uh, you're accepted by the father because of the son's merits. But then the other term you'll start seeing in scripture is not acceptance, but approval. What you'll see is Paul or Peter will use this or even John will use this term approval that you are approved of God. Do the things that that he approves of, lest you be ashamed at his coming. And so we start seeing the distinction that acceptance refers to salvation, but then approval refers to fellowship and the Calvinists blend the two. They blend approval and, and, and acceptance all together. And you can't do that. You're going to mess up so many passages. Okay, with that being stated, I, I want to get into a bunny trail on, on approval, but approval has to do with your good works as a believer. It has nothing to do with salvation. It's whether or not God approves of the service you are now offering to Him as a believer. And that approval will finally come to a head at the Bema Seat of Christ as you are judged by your works. Right? Judged for salvation? No, because if you're at the Bema Seat, that already means you're saved. You're judged according to your works and how good of a Christian you were. And to be rewarded for that. So, rewards are for approval. Acceptance is for salvation. Okay. I'm going to leave the rest for next time and we'll unpack this. Now what I want to leave you with is this and I want you to think really hard about this because I'm going to put this out there as for homework. How do I want to phrase this for your homework? Does your eschatology make an impact on your soteriology? Does your eschatology make an impact on your soteriology? Is the doctrine of salvation, eschatology is the doctrine of last things does your view of prophecy affect your view of salvation
0: thanks for joining us for another episode of the anchor bible study podcast we hope that this lesson is a blessing to you and helps grow you towards a more mature understanding of god's word rock harbor church has another podcast called anchor sunday sermons and it's filled with past and present messages in Revelation, Genesis, and Exodus. If you enjoyed this message and would like to hear it, please check the description of this episode or search your favorite podcast streaming services for The Anchor Sunday Sermons. Support for both of our podcasts comes from your generous gifts and donations. For more information about our ministry, we invite you to check out our website, rockharborchurch.net. Until next time... Remember, keep looking up for a redemption draws nearer.